Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, you're going to learn all about the art of being a pantser during my visit with Annalisa Parent. But first, remember that SEPA, Colorado Independent Publishers Association, is still accepting your submissions for this year's SEPA Evi Awards. Get your books to SEPA by May 19th, and good luck. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Hello, curious listeners. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. In today's podcast, we have a real treat for you. You are going to meet Annalisa Parent, who is not only the author of a book, Storytelling for Pantsers, we'll get into that, she also hosts the podcast, writing gym, and she's a personal coach to writers. And Elisa, I guess my first question to you would be, do you sleep? (laughs) I was going to say, when do you sleep, but do you? (laughs) I do sleep and exercise and eat and uh, take my dog for walks. Um, So I do all of those normal human things. But yeah, you're not the first person to ask me that. So one of my uh, clients said, you know, are you a vampire? And I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to reveal that. No secrets. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I have a lot of energy as a person in general, but I'm also really passionate about what it is that I do. And so that helps to make the work easy or easier at the very least, because I love what I do every day, all day, working with writers and helping them to finish, publish, and sell books. Um, And then the other factor that's really, really, really important and cannot be underestimated is that I have a fabulous team of people who work with me. Uh, Andy, who's the personal trainer in the writing gym and uh, the tech technical host of the Writing Gym podcast. Um, She's amazing. And I couldn't do what I do without her and without the other members of my team. So those are are my secrets to looking like maybe I don't sleep. (laughs) Well, good segue into the Writing Gym. Um, I wondered why you chose Writing Gym. Now, when I hear gym, I think of sweat and hard work. And um, isn't writing easy? Um, it can be. It can be easy and it can be fun. And um, for, I would say, all writers, there's also an aspect of work. So for every individual writer, the work part might come at a different phase. So for some, the work might be the creative process. And that's when we talk about writer's block. And for others, it might be in the editing process. And that's when books don't get finished and or published. So, um, you know, we chose the writing gym because, um, because of that work aspect, but also because of the payoff aspect. Now, I do not go to the real regular gym every single day, but rumor has it that people who do, um, you know, when you're working in that way, your heart is healthy, your body is healthy. Um, You know, you you tend to eat the right foods because you're, you're doing what's right for your body. And so, you know, we think about that work and the payoff 
for that work. Uh, there are a lot of writing coaches and writing programs and things out there that promise, you know, a book in the 24 hours or 48 hours or, you know, that's not the way that we approach writing. We do believe that it's work. We do believe that there's a payoff and we do believe that it can be a heck of a lot of fun because don't forget the gym also has Zumba and ballet hybrid, all kinds of like fun stuff that you can do there. And, and we do too. So we felt like that metaphor really was apt for what it is that we do. You know, we have a personal trainer Someone who comes alongside of you helps you to know what it is that you need to do, you know, and how many should you be doing every day? Not everybody should be lifting 200 pounds. Certainly I could not do that. Somebody else, that would be a good workout. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of parallelism to the process of getting a book finished and published as to getting your body in shape. Okay, that's great. And I have watched some of your writing gym little episodes on uh, on Facebook. I think you have some of them and on YouTube and they are hilarious. I mean, <laughs> you you clearly are having fun doing what you're doing. I mean, that's obvious in in your work and that's wonderful. And to be able to laugh while you're doing something that's difficult. What a bonus. Absolutely. I mean, that's what that's what gets us through it. And we say we work with writers who take the writing craft seriously without taking themselves too seriously. Nice. It's all about knowing what to be serious about in life and and what to just let go. Right, right. So your book about being a pantser and and writing a book, um, did you pants that book or did you plan it or was there some overlap in it? That's a really interesting question. One of the things that I talk about in in the book is um, know the writer you are and be that writer. And maybe you should maybe you should explain to our listeners what a pantser is. Yes, I think they all, I, I think they all know what planners are. Yeah, a pantser is someone who flies by the seat of their pants. So they might write chapter one, chapter five, chapter eight. Um, and not even know what chapters they are as they're writing them. So they don't necessarily write in order. Uh, They don't necessarily know where they're headed when they start writing. Uh, They're really flying by the seat of their pants. So uh, one of the things that I talk about for myself is that when I write fiction, I am just a 100% hardcore pantser. But when I write nonfiction, I'm an outliner. And that's the writer I am, and I just embrace that writer. Now I had a really tight deadline on storytelling for pantsers and so there was a lot more pantsing that went on uh, than went on in the rest of my nonfiction life. I was a journalist uh, for almost 20 years um, and there wasn't a whole lot of pantsing in my journalist life. I really knew what where I was going to go when I was writing my articles. Um, so you know find the writer that you are and be that writer and I have found most writers when they're writing fiction are pantsers of one type or another. So the creative writing process is a series of being creative, creating the story, generating that, and organizing the story. And so every writer just has a proportion. So somebody who thinks of themselves as an outliner might do create, organize, create, organize, create, organize, create, organize. Whereas someone who thinks of themselves as a pantser has this very long creative phase and then might think a little bit about organizing and then has a very long creative phase. So it's really just about the proportions Mm -hmm. that we use. I haven't yet 
met a writer who is a true outliner when it comes to fiction. And that means that, you know, you write down on paper what your book is going to look like, you know, the character is going to go to the store and then to the restaurant and then to the library. And that's exactly how the novel ends up happening. I haven't met that writer yet. For my first novel in my Water White trilogy, I pants the whole first book. I would dream at night and it would inspire a scene or I would meet someone and it would inspire a new character. And book one really flowed out of me completely pants. When I decided I was going to make it a series, then for the second book, I really had to plan because I had to remember all the things that happened in book one. And I needed to make sure that all the storylines intertwined well. And I, I pretty much had to know where it was going to end because then it's a trilogy and you need to know where you have to start the third ones. But my, so my third one, which I've started, I'm going to pants this one. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> Just see, I know I only know the ending, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And that's, oh, that. that's a lot but, of fun. And, yeah, I mean, pantsing is fun. It makes the creative process fun. The revision process becomes a little sticky because pantsers in general tend to be overwriters and you just have like this mass of information. I call it the murky, murky mess. You know, what goes in the novel? What doesn't go in the novel? What makes the final cut? Yeah, there are a lot of questions to ask in the revision process. And if we're going to publish and publish well, we need to ask those questions. Yes. The panting, the actual creating, that's a lot of fun. Pantsers can stray. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, well, the cover of my book has those, those pants with the wings on them. Right. And I, really apt image of like we that kind of process it is all right here here goes knock knock who's there who 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 oh wait a minute i said that wrong <laughs> i said that one wrong knock knock who's there spell spell who well well h w h o oh my gosh i can't do knock knock jokes you give me one <laughs> Who's there? Annie. Annie who? Anybody home? <laughs> Do you have you ever made up your own knock knock jokes? Or oh my gosh, as a kid I'm sure that I tortured my mother with that nonstop. <laughs> I completely blew that one. And I even had it written down. Oh well. There, there's a punchline for the who who one. Did you know that? <laughs> the the punchline is I didn't know you were an owl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, writing books. How many books on writing did you read before you wrote your own? And are there any memorable writing books that you can recommend to people other than your own? Yeah, well, of course. Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, how many writing books have I read? Um, Tots, probably. Higher than I can count. Um, <laughs> a lot. Um, many, many books. And, you know, I had the very distinct pleasure of studying creative writing under Julia Alvarez, which is, I mean, an education in and of itself. So um, I bought Stephen King's On Writing uh, in my 20s. And I sat down and read it almost in one sitting. And having studied creative writing in college and worked with some very high-level authors, um, I thought at that point in my life that I wasn't a writer because I didn't write an outline, because I wrote the story and then I rewrote the story and then I rewrote the story again. And Stephen King, in On Writing, shares his writing process at the end. Um, 
and he he has um, he uses a more colorful word than yucky, but he calls them <laughs> yucky first dress. Um, and and he shows his process and for sure you know the first draft is in fact yucky it's not any good at all and i mean not not that i am stephen king but that i related to that experience to say oh gosh you know that's what my first drafts look like and if stephen king's first drafts looks like look like that then maybe i'm a writer too and that book changed my life as a writer i got my first agent i don't know 18 months after reading that book um for young adult fantasy fiction. There it is. <laughs> um, and, I, and I referenced that book two or three times in my book, Storytelling for Cancers, as an homage to King because he really, he, he changed my life in reading that book. And, you know, I mean, I've read many, many others and there are other brilliant books out there, but that book met me at the right moment with the right message in my life. I don't think there's one book that can give you everything you need. Um, I would highly recommend if you haven't read Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. I think I'll probably have to read that 50 more times in my life just because of the way she writes. It's so beautiful. And kind of like what Stephen King does in bringing his own life experiences. It's, it's autobiographical in a way, in the way that he teaches us how to be better writers. I think it's great. Yeah. I read bird by bird in perpetuity. So I just <laughs> and, and it's great because, you know, when I get back to the beginning, I'm like, Oh, Oh yeah, I have read that before, but I forgot about that again. Right, so I knew right. that. So rich. Oh my goodness. It's wonderful. Neuroscience. How did you get into gray matter and, and brain research and how does neuroscience affect creativity? Ooh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we can talk about this for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so how did I get into neuroscience? Um, you know, I come from a teaching background, and um, I entered teaching at a really exciting time when programs that combined education and the brain were first starting. And that kind of sounds silly because it seems like a no-brainer that we would think about how the brain works and as we're teaching. Um, but really, um, the application of neuroscience to various other fields is really in its infancy as a process. And so uh, education and neuroscience have been married for, I don't know, about 20, 25 years, something like that. So um, I got really interested in it, you know, right, right from the get-go, ways that we can optimize our brains to learn best. And I just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper in it until I found myself in the brain imaging lab at MIT working on fMRIs because, you know, it was just like I was so fascinated by this research. And, um, you know, the more that I worked with writers – the more I started to see that all of those same questions that I was asking students back in the day and thinking about how students learn best, of course, apply to how we write and create best. So uh, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I was nominated twice for Teacher of the Year because of the way that I was able to individualize instruction mm -hmm. because of my knowledge of how the brain works. So that was super exciting. And now I'm able to look at writers and really say, 
and think about, you know, what is your learning style? How does that impact the way that you're going to interface with writing? Uh, you know, what is your thinking style? What activities can we do here that are going to optimize your brain and really make it create a situation wherein you're thinking and creating in the way that works? for your brain. So the analogy that I use, Laurel, is that most writers in most writing programs and classes and things out there have been working in a paradigm where they're running a marathon backwards. And they don't know any better. Their coaches don't know any better. This is the way that we've been doing things. It's the way that things are done. And suddenly when they get into a program that's based on neuroscience, they're running the marathon forward and their knees are bending in the way that they're supposed to bend. And they say, my goodness, it's so much easier to do it this way. I'm in creative flow. I know where I'm going. This is really working for me. So it's just a matter of working with the way that our body was intended to work. It's just that the way that our brain works isn't as intuitive or obvious as figuring out which way our knees are supposed to bend. So what if you get a client and they don't really know how their brain works best for being creative in the writing process? How do you discover that? Yeah, I mean, that's the magic. Um, I think if you like called up all of my clients right now and said, you know, so like right brain, left brain, like what, you know, what, who, tell me about your brain. They'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because it's sort of like the magic or the secret sauce that happens behind the scenes. All they know is that they're in the creative flow. They're finishing a novel. They feel great. They feel confident. They love what they're doing. It's working for them. Um, you know, because synapses are firing, things are happening. So it's really my job kind of behind the scenes to, to make those evaluations. Now, sometimes we talk about it directly where I say, you know, Laurel, I'm going to um, propose an idea for how you can get through this problem that you're facing. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a way that you could make this happen. Let me know if this sounds good to you, mm -hmm. you know, or try this and then give me some feedback and let me know. And 99.999% of the time, it's an effective thing uh, because I've, I've made an appropriate evaluation for how, how this person's brain works and, and what the, the function is. To my listeners out there today, I hope you're enjoying this episode with Annalisa Parent and stay tuned for more about pantsing and all that stuff. I hope you might consider becoming a patron of the Alligator Preserves podcast. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash alligator preserves for more information. And now stay tuned for more with Annalisa Parent. Do you play with brainstorming for uh, ideas? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I love I love a good brainstorm. And, and, you know, to go back to my team, that's one of the things that they're really valuable for. If they weren't throwing out ideas and and uh, coming up with things. Uh, the, the writing gym, the title that you mentioned, right? That was a fabulous brainstorm session of like, you know, can this work? What are we going to do? I love that. And that can help, I think, sometimes if you are stuck. A lot of writers I've spoken with feel like once they start a story, they have to write it sequentially. Mm -hmm. But they might have an idea of what's going to happen somewhere in the book. And I just tell them, Write that down. Work on that scene. The idea of jumping around, the idea of writing a scene that you're passionate about that speaks to you, and then eventually you'll get to it, or you might not get to it, or you get to it and it's and you'd have to tweak it a little bit because of things that happen in between. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. uh, it's. Powers it's fun. answers. Yeah, <laughs> I always <laughs> I always did brainstorming with my students. Um, whenever they had a writing project to come up, it's like you know, throw out six different ideas and pick one. Yeah, hmm, yeah, happens. pick one. Who who knows? Um, are you now in your book? You start many scenarios, many story scenarios. Uh, I recall one where there's a mother and a daughter in a surprise dinner. There's one where there's a a woman and her husband who has an issue with a milk cap. And you present these little story vignettes and you start writing them. And I found myself wanting to know how those stories ended. So are you going to ever write a book based on your little vignettes or... Do you, are you a short story writer um, at all? I don't tend to write short stories. That's one genre that I really just haven't launched into. Um, but and, you, you started so many. And... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there are positives and negatives to being a super creative person, right? And so I can just kind of come up with these scenarios off the cuff. And that's that's what happened in, in both of those cases that you're – referencing you know I had zero investment in who these characters were they were just sort of on the fly I came up with something so yeah I'll, I'll have to send you some copies of, of my novel when my novel comes out forthcoming so all, all right good that's what I wanted to know um, we kind of hit on it before the idea of writer's block do you actually believe that writer's block is a thing I believe that it's a thing because other people believe that it's a thing for me, it's not an impediment. It doesn't feel insurmountable. And I don't just mean in my own experience. I mean, in the experience of the writers that I'm with, um, that I'm working with. So, you know, if we, if we go back to that analogy of, of the marathon, right? So let's, let's suppose we're running this marathon and we're running it backwards. And we're going uphill. Can't but even imagine really, that. Really, really, really hard, right? We would not like that. And if we still had to go up that hill, but we got to go up it forwards, would it be hard? Yeah, it'd be hard. That'd be hard. But it'd be a whole lot easier than trying to do it backwards. And so what I've found happens often in writer's block is that it's not uh, sort of this existential crisis that a lot of writers maybe like to bemoan and kind of make it. It's really just, you know, you're not in the right space in your brain, like there, like there is an actual physiological event happening inside your head. So let's fix that. And then we'll go, let's go, let's do this thing. And do you provide techniques for overcoming them? Like write about something completely different, write up, look at your hand and write about <laughs> your hand just to get them writing something, even yeah, if it's not so what they're focused on. Every single week uh, over in the writing gym, we are working through activities that are getting people into that creative flow. And the really interesting thing, and this, this continues the, the gym analogy that we used earlier, you know, if I right now tried to pick up a 50-pound sack of flour, that would be really, really difficult for me because I don't lift weights every day. But if I and, did and that, lift And that would be more than half your weight too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a lot of weight. Uh, if I did lift weights every day and then I tried to pick up that sack of flour, well, it would be easier, right? And so creativity is actually a muscle, and when we're exercising it regularly and doing it the right way, 
then we don't end up in these these dead ends where we feel things and call it writer's block. I'm kind of a binge writer. Do you have any binge writer clients? Uh, not really, because we uh, our goal is to have our writers finish a novel in eight weeks, and they do. In eight weeks? In eight weeks, yeah. Uh, and it's amazing when they do that. And some, some of them have come and had zero words on paper and <sighs> finish a novel in eight weeks. So, you know, binge writing, it would be hard to binge write and get it done in eight weeks. So we really keep them working and getting it done steadily. But, you know, I've had moments in my life, I was going to say chapters in my life, <laughs> um, where, you know, I've, I've been more of a binge writer than a steady writer. So I understand that too. Okay. What has been your most challenging situation with a client? Have you had a, have you ever cl- had, had a client that you maybe just couldn't even work with? Well, I mean, I would say that I think that there are clients who aren't ready to really do what they need to do to finish a novel and publish it. But as far as the actual content, the novels that come my way, if the writer is really dedicated to publishing and publishing well, there isn't an idea out there that we can't get done and get it done well. It's just a matter of how dedicated the writer is. So one of my writers who's finishing up her novel right now as we speak, she was super dedicated. So she had a multi-perspective novel that was told not only from a human perspective, but also from a dog perspective. And yeah, so this was a tough one, right? And so we had to completely deconstruct what she'd already written. There was a lot of really good stuff there. And kind of like, I think about a puzzle. So we had to dump out all the puzzle pieces, look at every single one and make sure that it actually went to that puzzle. But we didn't have a picture on the front of the box. So we had to figure out what the picture on the front of the box was and which pieces went in. And then once we had all the right pieces for her to go and put that back together, not only to tell a story well, but you know, I'm talking to agents and editors and publishers every single day about, you know, what is publishable? Uh, you know, what's driving you crazy right now? What are you looking for? All of those questions. So we're looking at it through the lens of let's tell a good story. And let's tell a story that agents are going to want to stay up all night reading and then, you know, find a publisher for. So she is currently in the process of building that puzzle, if you'll stick with the analogy. But she had to be really dedicated to that. That was a lot of work for her to go through. That's an idea that could have just fallen to the wayside. It could have been forgotten if she didn't really, really, really want that for herself. And it's going to be a brilliant novel. It's very well done um, because she's so dedicated to getting her message out there. Well, congratulations to you and, and to her. I'm, I look forward to seeing that. All right. I'm going to try one more of these and it's going to lead into something else. Knock, knock. Who's there? To. To who? It's to whom. <laughs> so, and I know that's really horrible, but we're both writers and what do you think about the way our language is evolving? Oh, that's an that's a really interesting question. And you know, 
I'm an English professor. I teach uh, undergrad. I teach graduate school. I, you know, I love books. I love reading. I fluently speak languages other than English. Like language is really my thing. And so given all of those ingredients, you would think that I'm going to say something like, oh, it's terrible. The young people today don't even know how to speak English. But I don't feel that way at all. The way that I feel is language has always evolved, right? Yeah. Even read Dickens, you know, we don't speak that way anymore. That's not colloquial, even British English. So language evolves as society evolves. And I think that that's good. And I think that that's healthy. I think that as long as people know about context, I think that context is more the issue than language. Because what you end up having is people who are writing like text speak in a formal letter. Well, that's not a problem of language. That's a problem of someone not understanding the context for language. Mm -hmm. My experience with young people has said that there's a huge difference in the way that they talk outside of the classroom to each other and the way that they talk when they're around me and when they're talking to me. So that tells me that these people, these young people, oh my gosh, the young people today, they understand (laughs) that language has context. There's a different way that you address your professor than you address your buddies in the hallway. So I, you know, there are a lot of people who are super concerned about it. I am less concerned about it. That said, I also have a really high standard of, you know, what I would accept in, in my classroom, in my papers, in, you know, the, you have to know the context for where to use different types of language. That, for me, that's the bottom line. But beyond that, you know, go ahead, do your text speak and your hashtags and your whatever. It, it, has, it has its context and it has a use. When is the word whom going to become archaic or is it already? If, if you have to that's- look something up. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'm going to continue to use it. But, you know, I I pulled Dickens not out of a hat. I mean, Victorian, British Victorian literature is, that's my favorite time period. So there are a lot of words that I use in everyday speech uh, that that are antiquated. And that's fun to me. That's just my personal bent. But I, I would insist on whom. Uh, okay. Writing. That's, I just would. All right. Keep the standards, keep the standards up there. Um, I listened to an excerpt on YouTube from an interview you did with Jill, and I'm going to... Shufflebean. Thank thank you, (laughs) Jill Shufflebean. And I came away from it feeling frustrated. What she had to say had to do with publishers really not being interested in an author unless you can demonstrate that you'd be able to move 10,000 copies of your book in a year. Is that the reality of today with all the indie publishers we have out there? Is it really possible to have a traditional public publisher find you? And I know you can't do that without an agent, but even with an agent, how do you demonstrate to someone that you can move 10,000 copies of a book in a year if you're new? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, you know, I would say across the board, all of the agents that I work with are most certainly looking for that author platform, which is one of the reasons why we help authors to build an effective author platform. That's really important. So, you know, there, there are a lot of ingredients 
in, in that formula. One, not every single publisher is going to say 10,000 books, right? They might say a thousand books or 2000 books, but you know, there's a business investment there for them. They want to be able to recoup their investment and also to make money on it. That's, that's why they're doing what they're doing. Probably some of it is that they love stories or literature or that kind of thing too, but mostly they, you know, it's a business. They need to make their money. So, you know, the, the number of books may vary, but also publishing. So Jill published with Entrepreneur. And that's a huge business. I mean, the, the accolade that that is for someone in the business space, it's, you know, like getting into Harvard or something. It's, it's a very, that's a high level publisher. Now, not everyone wants to go for that level. Not everyone has the same goals. And so I think the really, the more important question here is making sure that writers are moving in a direction that's consistent with their ultimate outcomes, their dreams. What is it that you want out of publishing a book? You know, I have worked with grandmas who wanted to have some type of a memoir or an autobiography to pass on to their grandkids. That's a wonderful thing to want to write. We don't need to send that to Simon and Schuster. <laughs> that's not appropriate, right? So finding the venue that's really going to work for why do you want to get this message out into the world? Who do you want to tell it to? And let's let's find a match there and then let's worry about what the requirements are to get it to that point. Okay. One of your podcast episodes was with best-selling author Stephen James, mm -hmm. and I actually posted that on Twitter today because it was really wonderful. And he talks about four questions that he thinks every author should consider when they're writing their book. And one would be, what would the character naturally do when you're developing your characters? How can I make things worse? And he was hilarious with that. Um, how can I end it with a twist? And what types of promises have I made that I have not yet met? I think those are fabulous goals for writers to consider when they're writing their fiction. And uh, do you have any tidbits that you would add to that? Well, I mean, absolutely, that's that's good advice, and Stephen is is brilliant. And I believe that as part of that episode, we do have a, a worksheet. Uh, if people want that, they can if they look up that episode um, and they can get that that download. I'll post, I'll post a link to that on my, yeah. on my website. Yeah. So if you know if you miss those questions, or if you're driving, write <sighs> while you're driving. Um, you can. Well, we've got a handout for you. Yeah. So. You know, I think he is a, a real expert on, on storytelling. In fact, he has a degree in storytelling. I do not have a degree in storytelling. I kind of wish I did. Um, I think he said he was the 60th person ever to get a degree <laughs> in storytelling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's really excellent advice. And certainly the, the story that he moves through, and that, that novel is out now. When we interviewed him, he was still in the process of editing that novel, but it's out now. In, in how he was exploring the characters and what they were going to do and basically going from, from fuzzy concept of like, hmm, I think I'd like to write a book about, oh, you know, lighthouses. <laughs> and then sort of like how you explore that, how you pants it really right. um, is, is super interesting. 
Right. And I loved his advice that you don't have to plan it, you know, kind of like you're, you're talking about, you don't have to, you can pants, you can, if you answer these questions, you could see what would your character naturally do? And does that make sense? And, uh, and how, how can you make things worse? Oh my gosh. <laughs> You've got to have an imagination as well, which I think is wonderful. And he certainly does. If you were to do another off the top of your head, give our listeners a story starter with some elements. And I know this is putting you on the spot. Well, like a prompt on how to start a story. Yeah, or, well, actually start a story. Give me a character that's in a situation. Oh, oh okay. Uh, so Violet knew it was going to be a terrible day. From the moment that she woke up, the light was all wrong coming through the curtains. There was just something foreboding in the way that the shadows cast across the chair and across the bed and across the carpet. Even Snitsy knew it because she jumped up out of the pile of dirty laundry on the floor. And her mother shouted from downstairs, you're going to miss the bus. She got up. She looked for her favorite sweater, and it wasn't there. She went to the doorway to shout to her mother, and there was a noise coming from the kitchen, and it got louder and louder and louder. Oh, you're good. You are good. Oh, my gosh. I don't know that I could do that. (laughs) All right, listeners, you have to finish that story. Who, who or what is Snitsy? Is Snitsy a cat, a dog, a baby sister? I don't know. What was the noise? Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's fabulous. And how can you make it worse? <laughs> There's got to be a twist in there somewhere. Annalisa, this has been delightful. Where can people find your work or how, and how can people contact you if they need help with their writing? Absolutely. So Storytelling for Panzers, How to Write and Revise Your Novel is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and at fine bookstores and libraries everywhere. Uh, And, you know, I love to talk with writers, Laurel. So if you go to datewiththemuse.com, there's a scheduling link there. If you'd like to talk with me about your novel, I would love to talk about where you are, where you'd like to go and how you can get there. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for your time and uh, happy pantsing. You can find today's show notes with links and photos on my website at ledvalaurel.com. And if you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or you know the deal, wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends about it. I would love to grow my following and get some questions from listeners. Check out the rewards you will receive if you support Alligator Preserves on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Alligator Preserves and join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. Until next time, what kind of preserves would a pantser spread on their toast? Hmm, I know they won't plan it before opening the refrigerator door. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard, with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. <laughs>